0: Hello and welcome back, Supreme Court Puffs. My name is Aaron Larson, and you are listening to the eighth installment of Landmark Decisions in the United States Supreme Court. The main focus of this podcast will be to highlight the key decisions that made the Supreme Court and the United States what it is today. In today's episode, we will be looking at the background and decision in the 1819 case of Sturgis v. Crown and Shield. This case was first argued in front of the Marshall Court on February 8th of 1819 and was decided only nine days later on February 17th of the same year. The story for this case begins almost a decade prior in April of 1811. New York is the up-and-coming state rivaling Virginia in size, power, and population. Virginia had always been the state in the original colonies that held the largest population, and the home of the first general legislative body in the New World, with the General Assembly being established in 1619 and the House of Burgesses being established in 1642. Virginia also held claim to four out of the five first presidents of the United States. Despite all of this, New York was becoming the center of assembly and production in the early United States. In 1811, there was a minor depression where many states were enacting bankruptcy and insolvency statutes to release the burden on their citizens. The state of New York passed an act which liberated the person of the debtor. A debtor, in this case, is one who applies for bankruptcy in the state of New York. The act also discharges, or officially frees him, from all liability for any debt contracted previous to his surrendering of his property. Now what exactly did I just say? Ultimately, anyone who acquires a debt and then sells their property meaning land and home in this case can no longer be forced to pay that debt which was acquired before the selling of his property now women in this time were either living at home with their parents or with a husband women owning property had not become a custom at this time and really wouldn't until after the civil war the defendant in the case crown and shield declared his bankruptcy under the state's act to protect himself from paying a large fine which he acquired before the act was passed. Effectively, the act would be applied retroactively in order to free him of a payment he did not want to make. What I mean by retroactive is that the law had been passed, but the debt that Crown and Shield acquired was already in place. He already had a contract with Sturgis, claiming he owed a large amount of money. Once the law was passed, though, Crown and Shield applied for bankruptcy in order to get out of paying his fees to Sturgis, even though the debt was accrued before the law was ever passed. Sturgis, the plaintiff, obviously had not liked the way that this was being handled with regards to the bankruptcy law because he was losing money he had been owed before the law ever existed. The case made it to the Supreme Court with Chief Justice John Marshall writing the majority opinion with unanimous consent. He kept his ruling vague and we will talk about why near the end of the episode. The major question Marshall looked at was whether or not state bankruptcy laws violated Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution, which gave Congress the ability to, quote, establish uniform laws on the subject of bankruptcies throughout the United States. Congress, up until this point, had been the sole maker of all bankruptcy laws in the United States and they exercised this power largely in the Bankruptcy Act of 1800. This established the first laws for which laid out finance-related legislation in the early United States. This was in fact the first issue which Marshall looked at, and his answer is not very clear. Justice Johnson, a few years later, argued that this is because the court was generally divided on the issue about state bankruptcy laws and in order to have a clean case, there needed to be a broad assessment rather than one more in depth. The judges appointed under Jefferson and Madison wanted to give states more power, meaning they wanted to keep all state bankruptcy laws open and allow them to continue to make more. The Federalist Justices wanted the opposite. They wanted to abolish all state bankruptcy laws and keep the power to write this type of legislation solely with Congress. There was, in effect, a bargain that was made. The Supreme Court agreed to axe the New York law and make it invalid as long as states were still allowed to make these types of laws under a few conditions. The New York law was deemed invalid because of the Contracts Clause in the Constitution. Article 1, Section 10, Clause 1 of the Constitution states that no state shall make any law impairing the previous obligation of contracts. This clause has only been enacted by the Supreme Court a total of seven times in their majority opinions, and if you think back, the case of Fletcher v. Peck also used this clause. To explain deeper here, because the new york law was applied retroactively in the case of crown and shield the contract with sturgis was broken in order to help the defendant this directly goes against the contract clause which impaired the obligation crown and shield had to sturgis the legislation passed was struck down by the supreme court not because it was unconstitutional but because of the way it was being applied retroactively, it was breaking contracts that were already made. This retroactive portion of the law was deemed unconstitutional because it impaired the debtor's obligation to a contract under Article 1, Section 10, Clause 1 of the Constitution. In order to satisfy the Federalists on the Court, The Jeffersonian and Madisonian appointed justices caved in order to keep bankruptcy laws open for future use by states. States could still make laws in the future with regards to bankruptcy, but they could not be applied retroactively, and they could not be in conflict with any bankruptcy laws Congress had passed, as they are the only ones with that responsibility that is laid out in the Constitution. This question also comes up later in the 1827 case of Ogden v. Saunders. Saunders was a citizen of Kentucky demanding payment in accordance to a contract signed with Ogden, who lived in New York at the time of the signing. The central question of this case was whether or not Congress had the exclusive power to pass bankruptcy laws and the meaning of the phrase obligation of contracts. The opinion in this case, written by Justice Washington, found that the Contracts Clause in accordance with bankruptcy laws could only apply to those with contracts already in place. A major argument in this case was that any contract broken after the law was signed still broke the Contracts Clause in the Constitution. The majority in the court argued this was not a functional argument as new contracts after bankruptcy laws were in place had to take these new state laws into consideration when signing the official documents. Justices Marshall, Duvall, and Story dissented to this opinion and argued that the contract clause theoretically gave Congress the sole power over bankruptcy laws, and the dissenters rejected the argument that state laws had become part of contracts signed within the state thereafter. Marshall argued that contracts are an obligation between one party and another, and they do not derive their power from government. Ironically, Ogden v Saunders is the only case in his Supreme Court tenure which Marshall finds himself on the losing side of the argument in a constitutional law case, Sturgis v. Crowninshield and, and Ogden v. Saunders revolve around the rarely used contracts clause. Both present many problems and are confusing in their nature, even for those fascinated with the inner workings of law and the Supreme Court. They both present landmark arguments with regards to the combination of bankruptcy law and constitutional law, and allow for states to write legislation with regards to bankruptcy, even though Congress is the only one established in the Constitution which can write laws of this kind. There are major clauses, though, which states need to look out for. They cannot apply these laws to debts made prior to the passing of the law, as that goes against the Contract Clause, and the state laws cannot conflict with those passed in Congress. A general theme early on in this series is the conflict of power between states and the federal government. Today, we do not think of our states as being more powerful than the federal executive legislature or even the supreme court in the early years though the articles of confederation planted seeds of discontent in the minds of state officials they saw what power was like under the articles and they had a tough time giving up that power to the federal government once the second constitution was ratified We will see this conflict for many years to come, despite it being almost three decades into the use of the Second Constitution of the United States. Further reading from today's podcast can be found on the Library of Congress website where court decisions are published, as well as Peter J. Coleman's 1974 book, Debtors and Creditors in America published by the Wisconsin Historical Society. Come back next week when we will discuss the huge 1819 case of McCullough v. Maryland and its role as a landmark case in the Supreme Court. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter under the username of at ALARS175 if you wish to leave me comments and questions on today's episode. I ask that you please follow, rate, and like my podcast so I can continue to improve my skills and gain listeners. I also ask that you think about supporting this podcast through the link in the description. Thank you for listening and see you next week. All of the work and research done for this podcast is the sole property of myself, Aaron Larson, and shall not be downloaded or redistributed without my express written consent. Thank you.